testing, one, two, testing. What an incredible song. God, what love, my God. A beautiful depiction of the life of Christ from incarnation to the cross. Let me encourage you parents, if you don't have your children in children's choir, you experience just for a brief this morning what they're missing and having their hearts tuned to the Lord through song. And so we want to encourage you to participate in children's choir as a means of discipleship and seeing your children grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. This Christmas season, we're going to, as we do every year, reflect upon the incarnation of Christ. And this year, we're going to do that through a series of sermons that look at the incarnation from a few different angles. Today, we're going to look at the incarnation as it shows us the sinlessness of Christ. We'll do that from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, primarily. Next week, we're going to look at the incarnation as it shows us Jesus's relationship with the Father. How would we know the inner workings of the Trinity and the relationship of the Trinity and the way in which the Father and Son correspond if it were not for the incarnation? Jesus's incarnation reveals to us the way in which he and the Father relate to one another. We see it. Then we'll look from John chapter 1, verse 14, to the aspect of the humanity of Christ. The incarnation shows us the humanity of Christ. And then on Easter, sorry, Easter, wow, on Christmas Sunday morning, Yes, we are having church on Christmas Sunday morning. We have church every Sunday. So this Sunday, December 25th, we'll look at the incarnation and uh, understanding that the incarnation brings to us a substitute that we so desperately need. Today, the incarnation reveals to us the sinlessness of Christ. We're going to look at a text today in Hebrews chapter 7, but we're not only going to stay in Hebrews chapter 7 as we seek to weave together this theological construct of the sinlessness of Christ. The sinlessness of Christ is depicted for us throughout the Gospels and then through various writers of the text of Scripture, such as Peter and Paul himself. An understanding of exactly who Jesus is is a conversation that has gripped the heart of Christianity from its very beginning. We see the early church and its expression of faith. We see that in the text of Scripture as the early church, for example, proclaimed, Jesus is Lord. As the church would progress, so would a number of controversies in how people understood the very nature and character of the person of Christ. There have been throughout history a number of church councils, a gathering of a group of 
churches that come together to reflect upon a certain topic, a certain subject, and then they wrestle with one another for a period of time and come out with a statement. For example, in recent history, we have seen a number of these statements issued. For example, the Nashville statement on sexuality a few years ago. A number of key evangelical theologians and pastors got together and wrote a statement on the church's understanding of sexuality. Why do they meet in contemporary recent history to write a statement on sexuality? Because there's an attack on a Judeo-Christian biblical ethic as it relates to sexuality. In the late 1970s to the 1980s, a group of theologians gathered together in Chicago, and we have what we call the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. It's a statement on the truthfulness of the text of Scripture. Why did theologians gather in the late 70s and into the 80s to write a statement on the church's understanding of the text of Scripture as being without error? Because beginning in the 1920s, a strong battle was waged against the truthfulness of the Word of God. So too has the church throughout its history gathered her pastors, her theologians, to write statements to express exactly what the church thought about a certain subject. In 19, sorry, 19, in 428 A.D., not 1948, in 428 A.D., a well-known theologian in the church by Nestorius was writing about the person of Christ. And for Nestorius, he struggled with the church's understanding of Mary as being God-bearing. For him, it was a contradiction to understand a human who is carrying another human to be one who was God-bearing. So Nestorius said we cannot speak of Mary as being God-bearing. Rather, he said we should speak of Mary as being man-bearing. He conflated the issue of the two natures of Christ, his his deity, his sinlessness, and Jesus' humanity. His humanity that expressed weakness such as hunger or thirst. His humanity that enabled him to take upon the sins of the world, to bear the guilt of the sinfulness of your heart and my heart. And shortly before Nestorius was another church historian, theologian, by the name of Eutychus. And he too misunderstood these two twin natures of Christ that flowed simultaneously in the giving of Christ in the incarnation. And for Eutychus, he understood that there were indeed two natures of Christ, but those two natures of Christ existed prior to the incarnation, such that once the incarnation takes place, 
There is only one nature in Christ, his human nature. With these conversations taking place around the 400s, the church gathered in the late fall of 431, and they have constructed for you and for me, they met in Chalcedon and have constructed what you and I have come to understand, understand as the Chalcedonian Creed. We have this on the screen for you this morning. I'd like for you to read this church creed with me. Hear these words. And this is a translation of that creed. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once completing Godhead and complete in manhood, like us in all respects. But notice this next phrase, apart from sin. As regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin. Notice these next words, the God-bearer. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and one substance, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. A statement that weaves together these twin truths concerning the very nature and character of Christ. And friends, to misunderstand one of these natures of Christ is to misunderstand the totality of the person of Christ. You can't have the deity of Christ and reject the humanity of Christ. And neither can you accept the humanity of Christ and reject the deity of Christ. This is the testimony of Scripture and the church throughout her history. And this, my friends, is exactly what the writer of Hebrews mentions in Hebrews chapter 4 that we began with at the beginning of our service, or here in Hebrews chapter 7 as he's reflecting on the superiority of Christ in his priesthood. You'll notice as we come to this text that our text this morning is a culmination of a long argument that the author of Hebrews has been constructing as it relates to the person of Christ. He's setting Jesus' priestly service 
in context of the Old Testament and then flowing into the New Testament. In other words, we could summarize the writer of Hebrews' comments on Jesus' priesthood in Hebrews chapter 7 as saying, Jesus was not God's plan B for redemption. Jesus fulfills a priestly role that finds itself rooted in the text of Scripture, even in the Psalms themselves, Psalm 110 verse 4, which is the text upon which the writer of Hebrews constructs his sermon here in the book of Hebrews. So we come to the culmination of this reflection on the priesthood of Christ here in Hebrews chapter 7, and we read these words. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Who is this high priest? Listen at these next five characteristics. He is holy. He is innocent. He is unstained. He is separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, the high priests that you are used to engaging, these earthly high priests. He has no need to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for the, those of the people. Why? Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath, which came after, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect for how long? Forever. Friends, as we celebrate the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we cast our gaze upon one who has been sent, who is perfect and sinless and holy and unblemished and innocent in every way. Why must the person of the Lord Jesus Christ be one who is holy and unblemished and innocent and pure forever. See, friends, if there were an ounce of sin in Jesus, he would cease to be God and the story of the text of Scripture is only God can save His people from their sins. This is what the writer of Hebrews is arguing here in verse 27. Jesus has made <clears throat> a sacrifice once and for all. There isn't another sacrifice that is needed. So he gets to that understanding by understanding the very nature and character of the person of Christ. Look with me back to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, and let's look at these designations of Jesus. He is holy. 
What do we mean by an understanding of Christ as one who is holy? The writer of Hebrews is reflecting on this inner character of Christ, who he is at his very core. He is one that is completely, totally pleasing to God. He is one that is without sin. This is what the text of Scripture means when we see in the Gospels or we see in the book of Acts as they reflect upon Jesus as being this one who is holy. Not only does the Scripture mention Jesus as holy, look at this next designation that he gives to Jesus. He is one that is innocent. In fact, we could say in some ways that all of these words are an outflow of what it means for Jesus to be holy, but here the text of Scripture says innocent, or some of your Bibles translates that word as being blameless. He is one who is blameless. In other words, he is completely and totally free from any guile or sin. Jesus is completely, totally innocent. He stands in complete righteousness before the Father. He is not guilty of one single sin. Jesus is innocent. But notice the next word. He's holy. He's innocent. He is unstained. Some of your Bibles translate that as he is pure. It's the absence of any legal or moral pollution in the person of Christ. Jesus is not legally guilty. For example, I might claim to be pure as it concerns my driving record. In other words, you can look at my driving record and there is no legal guilt against my record. Does that mean my driving is pure? Does that mean I've never exceeded the speed limit? Does that mean I've never made a right turn without my blinker? No. But don't miss the point of the text. It's not as though Jesus is one who hasn't been caught by the priest of his day. It's not as though Jesus is one who has been violating the law of God and not been found and not been caught by the police of his day. Jesus and his actions are completely pure, completely holy, completely innocent. Thus, he has no record at all. He has no legal guilt before the Father. He is perfectly pure. But friends, this isn't only the understanding of the writer of Hebrews as it concerns the person and character and nature of Christ. I'd like for you to see as well on a quick journey that this is also the testimony of the Gospels, and not just the testimony of the Gospels, the testimony of Paul, of Peter, and of course, the writer of Hebrews, Luke. 
Look with me in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We have this announcement of the angel to Mary concerning her being the God-bearer. Bible says in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called what? Holy, the Son of God. In the very incarnation of Christ, the Gospel writer is recounting this narrative of this correspondence between heaven and earth, between the angel and Mary. So that Mary herself, and by extension the disciples, and by extension you and me, might rightly understand who is Jesus from the very beginning of his earthly journey. Jesus is the Holy One of God. In John chapter 6, Peter himself would go on to make this confession of faith concerning Jesus, an announcement made at the very beginning of his ministry, codified in the heart and life of his disciple John. Listen as John makes this confession in John chapter 6, verse 69. And we have believed and come to know that you are the what? Holy One of God. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. This is the confession of faith of the early disciples concerning the very character and nature of Christ. But it wasn't just a correspondence from heaven to earth between the angel and Mary. It wasn't just an acknowledgement of Peter, a disciple of Jesus. It was also the understanding of the very demons of hell. They knew, too, the character of Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, hear these words of this demon. Luke chapter 4, verse 34, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. This is a testimony of the demons of hell. Even those who stand in complete opposition to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ know his very character. Listen what this demon says. I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Not only did the angel understand it, not only did the disciples understand Jesus as being completely sinless, the demons understood Jesus to be perfectly 
morally pure, but Jesus himself also understood his very nature. Look with me back in the Gospel of John. You'll remember this well-known narrative in John chapter 8 as the people have sought to entrap the person of Christ. In John chapter 8, verse 46, Jesus asked them this pointed question, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Do they answer Jesus' question? Was there one that stood up and said, I'll cast that stone. You're guilty of sin. As you read through the entire gospel narratives, the gospel writers themselves depict Jesus as one who is sinless. This is John's way of showing us that Jesus himself in this question, which one of you convicts me of sin. Jesus himself rightly understood his very nature. But so too was it Paul's understanding. As Paul reflected on this very Christ, in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, Paul writes these words, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Be careful in understanding what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying that Jesus came in sin, that Jesus is of sin. This is a reference to Jesus' humanity and the likeness of sinful flesh. But Paul is clearly acknowledging that Jesus had the likeness of human flesh, yet Jesus was without sin, for Jesus himself came for sin. Jesus came to conquer sin. Why did Jesus come to conquer sin? Because only God can save. Jesus does for us what only God could do. And then Paul would go on to write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that he who knew no sin became sin. For what purpose? That we, the unrighteous, might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was in every measurable way without sin, but it wasn't only the confession of Paul it was also the confession of Peter. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Look what Peter says in verse 19, and then we'll go to chapter 2, verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. As Peter is making a plea for his church, for you and me to be holy and blameless and without sin, Peter grounds that exhortation 
in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why should you and I be holy and without sin? Because Jesus was holy and without sin. Chapter 1, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. And then look what Peter writes in chapter 2, verse 22. With great clarity concerning the sinlessness of Christ, Peter writes these words, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus was completely, totally sinless. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says with clarity in chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16, and then again back to our text in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. Hear these words from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Friends, the sinlessness of Christ is depicted for you and me in his earthly beginning, in that incarnation moment when Mary and Joseph celebrate with what would become a celebration of the world of the birth of Jesus. And what does Jesus accomplish for you and me through his sinless life? Jesus accomplishes for you and me what we could not accomplish on our own. Jesus stands as an example for you and for me of what God intended humanity to be in the garden. What God intended for Adam and Eve to be. Humanity, fully in relationship with God and walking in perfect obedience to God. Jesus does, through his sinlessness, what no sinful high priest could accomplish for the nation of Israel or for you and me. Jesus accomplishes, through his sinlessness, redemption for sinful, frail, cracked clay pots of humanity, Jesus accomplishes redemption for you and for me. See that in clarity in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Why? Because he has accomplished that once and for all when he offered up, notice what the text says, himself. 
his sinless self. The incarnation brings to you and me a sinless Jesus. And a sinless Jesus brings to you and me salvation. Have you accepted God's sinless Son as Savior? Have you experienced Jesus as a Savior of the world? Or do you find yourself this morning in your own rebellious heart rejecting Jesus' kingly rule over your life? For unlike Jesus, you enjoy the pleasures of this world. This is what Jesus shows us in his temptation with Satan in the wilderness as Satan tried to tempt Jesus with the pleasures of the world. Jesus, as a sinless son of God, rejects Satan's temptation and offers to you and me an example of how we too can reject the pleasures of this world, but it only happens, friends, when we live in right relationship with God. Are you living in right relationship with God today? Are you trusting in Christ today? Are you believing in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in case, the writer of Hebrews says, you miss the point that I'm making, he says, this isn't something I've concocted. This isn't a narrative that I've made up. Look what he says in verse 28, for the law appoints men and their weaknesses, high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, reference back, to Psalm 110, verse 4, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. See, friends, Jesus and his sinlessness is a fulfillment of the perfect word of God which compels you and me to believe. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for this image of Christ, this one who has been given to us as the perfect, sinless Son of God. And Lord, we celebrate you this morning in that incarnation. We give you thanks, God, that in your wisdom you have revealed yourself to us through Jesus. And Jesus as being the one who is fully God. And in being fully God, you, Jesus, have accomplished something on our behalf that we could not accomplish for ourselves. Redemption. Would you pause for a few moments where you're seated this morning and thank God 
in response to this message, would you thank God for sending his sinless son? As you thank God for this sinless son, would you thank God for the example that Jesus set before us? And as you thank God for that perfect example, if you're here today and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your life has been changed by the gospel, would you ask God by His Spirit to cause you to be more like Christ? Would you ask Him to increase your obedience? Would you ask him to increase your love for the Father? Would you ask him to increase your desire to walk obediently? Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, and unlike Christ, you are separated from God because of your sin. Because your father is Adam. Your head is in Adam. Would you trust in Christ this morning? Would you cast yourself before the mercy of God and the grace of God? Confess that you are a sinner and that you do believe Jesus is Lord. For the Bible says... Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In just a moment, friend, we're going to stand and corporately respond to God sending us Jesus. As we sing this song, Because He Lives, would you sing with a heart of thankfulness? As we sing, if you're here today and you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, Myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. This would be a great opportunity for you to come forward and just say to one of us, I need to trust in Christ. But friend, you don't have to walk forward to speak to one of us. You can turn to someone seated next to you, for there are plenty of people seated around you who would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Secondly, maybe you'd like for one of us just to pray with you. That if you, as you've seen this image of the sinless Son of God through the text of Scripture today, that God has stirred in your heart a desire to pursue holiness with greater intensity. We would delight in praying for your heart, your life, to grow in godliness. Thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we stand now and sing in response to your goodness, may our response be pleasing to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me?